This is Guns and Butter. And any time you hear anybody say that John Kennedy, like uh, Lyndon Johnson, uh, had something to do with our getting involved in the war in Vietnam, you are listening to a man who doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, the assassination of JFK, the Garrison Interview, Part 1. In this 1988 radio documentary, you will hear the voices of the narrator, Roscoe, co-producer and writer David Mendelson, interviewing former New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison, filmmaker Oliver Stone, Lee Harvey Oswald in a 1963 radio interview, and professor and author Philip Melanson. The assassination of JFK, the Garrison interview, was co-produced, edited, and directed by Andrew Phillips. And an old soldier, Dwight Eisenhower, whose warning in the closing moments of his eight years in the White House would be remembered by many as the prophetic speech of his career. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. This is a story about America. America, which proclaims that democracy means a government of, by, and for the people. America, which condemns foreign governments run by military dictatorships, societies ruled by the powerful few who alone are party to decisions which affect the many where the process of leadership goes on behind closed doors and presidents come and go without the people even knowing why. This is a story about that moment in America when the government changed and the people were excluded, not just from choosing their leader, but from knowing why their leadership changed. This is a story about that day in Dallas, the day John Kennedy died. It appears as though something has happened in the motorcade route. Something, I repeat, has happened in the motorcade route. Put me on, Phil. Put me on. We understand there has been a shooting. The presidential car coming up now. We know it's the presidential car. You can see Mrs. Kennedy's pink suit. There's a Secret Service man spread eagle over the top of the car. For some time they were saying uh, Castro killed Kennedy, and I think the current vogue now for the agency is to publish books saying the mob and all these ridiculous things. When any thinking person can look at the facts and see clearly that the main conflict was between Jack Kennedy and the Central Intelligence Agency. In fact, it was on the front page of the New York Times in 1963, the split between the two of them. It came to a point where Jack Kennedy said, I'm going to tear the agency in a thousand to a thousand pieces. It just happened the agency tore him before... Uh, he got a chance. The Dallas Police radio tape on which four rifle shots in the correct time sequence have been superimposed. I think that bringing out the truth is so critical that these words must be said. The American people have to face the fact that this is not an oversight, not a mistake on somebody's part. Every day that passes, high individuals at the very top of the United States government are playing an active role in concealing from you the truth of John Kennedy's murder. Secret Service men standing up in the limousine, they are armed with submachine guns. 
It appears as though someone in the limousine might have been hit by the gunfire. There's a lot of money to be made and has been made in uh, keeping the Cold War going. And so there are a lot of, there are billions and billions, in... just billions, that's all. Keeping the Cold War going means many billions coming in, and that's one of the reasons they killed Jack Kennedy to keep it going. There are many unanswered questions concerning the death of President Kennedy, and there are several credible theories. In this program, we will present Judge Garrison's memories, views, and supporting evidence concerning his investigation. This is not a definitive examination of the tragic events of 1963, but the Garrison interview is an important audio document of a crucial and little understood moment of American history. Millions of Americans have seen Oliver Stone's movie, JFK, which focuses on Garrison's investigation in 1967, but very few have heard Judge Garrison recount his work and his message for America in his own words. In 1988, Sheridan Square Press, a division of the Center for Media Analysis, which published Garrison's memoir on the trail of the assassins, described the book this way. 25 years ago, on November 22nd, 1963, President John F. Kennedy was murdered in Dallas, Texas. Within hours, it was learned that Lee Harvey Oswald, who was arrested for the crime, had lived in New Orleans the preceding summer. New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison immediately commenced an investigation and arrested a suspicious former CIA pilot and anti-Castro soldier of fortune named David Ferry. He turned Ferry over to the FBI for questioning, but shortly thereafter, federal authorities released him. Ten months later, the Warren Commission report ratified the official story that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone assassin of the president. It was not until three years later that Jim Garrison returned to the investigation, after his friend Senator Russell Long confided to him his suspicion that the Warren Commission was dead wrong. Thus commenced an intensive and tortuous inquiry filled with bizarre characters that resulted in the only criminal prosecution ever brought for the murder of President Kennedy. As this harrowing tale reveals, Garrison painstakingly uncovered evidence, ignored by the Warren Commission, that members of the U.S. intelligence community had conspired to kill President Kennedy and that Lee Harvey Oswald had been set up as their fall guy. Among the key conspirators were Ferry, fanatical former FBI agent Guy Bannister, who was deeply involved with Cuban exiled mercenaries, and a distinguished pillar of New Orleans society, Clay Shaw, the director of the International Trade Mart. As Garrison built his case, crucial witnesses, including David Ferry, died mysteriously. Documents disappeared, the DA's office was repeatedly infiltrated, and, most intriguing of all, the federal government not only withheld its cooperation, but attacked the investigation. The media waged an intensive campaign vilifying Garrison, aimed at discrediting his case against Clay Shaw and corroborating the official story. Now, two decades after the Shaw trial, Jim Garrison finally tells his own story. 
he pieces together his thesis that President Kennedy was the victim of a conspiracy and cover-up involving elements of the CIA, the FBI, and state and local officials, all of them hell-bent on reversing the president's bold moves to lessen the tensions of the Cold War. Every major move he made, and I'm saying move, not words, on this day he was sworn in, which were written for him by members of the staff, I mean every major decision he made as president was toward ending the Cold War. So if you hear anybody describe him uh, with a straight face as a Cold War, you're talking to somebody who doesn't know what he's talking about. Kennedy did so much and made so much progress towards ending the Cold War that those cold warriors who were in our government had to kill him in order to keep the Cold War going. What changes in policy can you point to that uh, occurred after his assassination where uh, we might see a turnabout from earlier Kennedy policies to the new Johnson policies? There were a series of them, but, uh, but the most immediate one occurred within 72 hours after his assassination. Uh, his successor, Lyndon Johnson, who was a, a closet cold warrior all the time and who in the Senate was known as the senator from the Pentagon because of his, his, uh, his war-oriented philosophy, within 72 hours of John Kennedy's death, right after the... The eulogy in the rotunda, uh, Lyndon Johnson crossed over to the old office building and met with the ambassador to South Vietnam, Henry Lodge, and said, in effect, you can go back and tell the Vietnamese now that we're going to back them all the way. In other words, what he was doing within 72 hours, no position papers, no six-week, too much studies by the military and intelligence. Within a few days, he was meeting with the Lodge and telling him, we are changing the policy in, in the Far East 180 degrees. He reversed Kennedy's policy, and sure enough, uh, in 18 months, he, he was pouring half a million American soldiers in there, an expeditionary force, with no reason. We were not even invited by South. We weren't wanted by South Vietnam. And of course, the result, as you know, was not only did we lose 55,000 fine young men died, murdered by our own government, in a sense, but uh, we, we, uh, we got in a war which was not supported by the people, but was uh, kept alive nevertheless by successively by Johnson and then by Nixon uh, to the point where the, in riots in Washington, D.C., they had to arrest 20,000 uh, uh, American citizens protesting the war. By those Nazi methods, they managed to make a war nobody wanted last nine years. But with Kennedy... We would not have had the war because he said most specifically on the 2nd of October, 1963, he told Kenny O'Donnell, and it's in Kenny O'Donnell's book, Johnny, We Hardly Knew You, we're getting out of Vietnam. We will be completely out by 1965. That means the helicopters and everything. And incidentally, when he said that, we, even then we did not have a single combat soldier in Vietnam. As long as Jack Kennedy was alive, we did not have a single combat soldier in Vietnam. And any time you hear anybody say that John Kennedy, like uh, Lyndon Johnson, uh, had something to do with our getting involved in the war in Vietnam, you are listening to a man who doesn't know what he's talking about. What is the evidence supporting the theory that JFK would not have carried out the Johnson Vietnam policy of full-scale war 
which led to 550,000 American ground troops and daily B-52 bombing runs, in the end dropping twice as much explosive force on that small country as was dropped by both sides in all of World War II. Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., writing in the January 10, 1992 edition of the Wall Street Journal, No one can say what President Kennedy might eventually have done about Vietnam, but there is strong documentary evidence as to his long-run purpose. From the beginning to end of his administration, he steadily opposed repeated military recommendations that he introduce an American expeditionary force. Having watched the French army fail in Vietnam in 1951, he had no desire to send the American army into the same quagmire. The last thing he wanted, said General Maxwell Taylor, was to put in our ground forces. In the hope of enabling the South Vietnamese to save themselves, President Kennedy did agree to modest increases in the number of U.S. military advisors assigned to the South Vietnamese army. But as Roswell Gilpatrick, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, said later, resistance was encountered from the President at every stage as the total amount of U.S. personnel deployment increased. In July 1962, President Kennedy instructed Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, to start planning for the phased withdrawal of the American advisors. The target date for complete disengagement was the end of 1965. The military produced an acceptable plan in May 1963. Mr. Gilpatrick later said, McNamara indicated to me that this was part of a plan the president asked him to develop to unwind the whole thing. Good afternoon and welcome to the National Press Club. Here, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome in his second appearance at the National Press Club, Oliver Stone. The central historical question raised by JFK, of course, has to do not with the tramps in Dealey Plaza, not with who might have been firing from the grassy knoll, not with what coalition of Cubans, exiles, mobsters, rogue intelligence officers the conspiracy might have been concocted by, but the darker stain on the American ground in the 60s and 70s, Vietnam. It is Vietnam which has become the bloody shirt of American politics, replacing slavery of a hundred years before. Just as we did not resolve, if we ever did, the great battle over slavery until 100 years after the Civil War, when we passed the uh, Voting Rights Act of 1965, so it becomes clear that the Vietnam War remains the watershed of our time. And the divisions in our country among our people opened up by it seemed to get wider and wider with each passing year. JFK suggests it was Vietnam that led to the assassination of John Kennedy, that he became too dangerous, too strong an advocate of changing the course of the Cold War, too clear a proponent of troop withdrawal for those who supported the idea of a war in Vietnam and later came to support the war itself. Was President Kennedy withdrawing from Vietnam? Had he indicated strongly his intention to do so? Had he committed himself firmly and against all hawkish advice to the contrary to oppose the entry of U.S. combat troops? 
the answer to these questions is unequivocally yes. As Arthur Schlesinger Jr. has attested and Major John Newman, a young historian here on this dais who has devoted himself to a 10-year study of this, can attest. His book, JFK in Vietnam, a major work, will surely contribute more heavily than any other volume of immediate military history to the solution of these questions. Major Newman makes it very clear President Kennedy signaled his intention to withdraw from Vietnam in a variety of ways and put it firmly on the record with the National Security Action Memorandum 263 in October of 1963. Those who try to say it was no more than a call for a rotation of troops or a gimmick or, and that the Johnson NSAM 273 within a week of the assassination merely confirmed the policy ignore the obvious question. If LBJ was merely continuing Kennedy's policies, why was it necessary to reverse the NSAM? The first order he gave in that, that regard was to return 1,000 of our troops as a gesture that could not be misunderstood, 1,000 troops by the end of December 1963. But that was countermanded within 24 hours of his death, which gives you some idea of how much backing he had from his own government. Let's look at his Cuba policy. Bay of Pigs would certainly seem like it was an anti-communist move. The Bay of Pigs was not his policy. The Bay of Pigs was inherited from the previous administration. And uh, the, the main designer and supervisor of the Bay of Pigs was a man named Richard Nixon, who later, when he got back in office, helped to keep the Vietnam War going. He was one of the, one of the cold warriors, a, a dedicated cold warrior from the first time he, he entered public office. But uh, that was not Kennedy's policy. Kennedy inherited that, and his position, and he left no doubt about it, was I don't have much alternative. People uh, think uh, that I'm failing to follow up on the previous president if I don't go ahead with something that he's, he's initiated. But he was not very enthusiastic about it. He was most reluctant. And, and the, the invasion of the Bay of Pigs of Cuba, as you know, was uh, being accomplished by... by uh, anti-Castro Cubans, trained and, and backed, of course, by American advisors, by the CIA, CIA project. But it was insufficiently backed, and they, this agency thought that it could uh, jam Jack Kennedy into bringing in the Navy fighter planes, which uh, were just over the horizon on the Navy flat tops. Their engines were even warmed up, so they were obviously intended to be used. But Kennedy didn't intend to bring us into World War III that casually. And so when the man in charge of the Bay of Pigs, General Cabell, Charles Cabell, who just by a strange coincidence happened to be the brother of uh, Mayor Earl Cabell, in whose town Jack Kennedy was murdered a year or two later, when General Charles Cabell called on President Kennedy to make the Navy planes available, John Kennedy said, absolutely not, and returned him down. So that was not really John Kennedy's project at all. In the Cuban Missile Crisis, when that was laid on John Kennedy, the, uh, he recognized it for the crisis it was, for the uh, possible beginning of, of, of World War III, but it, it's important to see that in its perspective. It, it's becoming increasingly apparent, I think, to most thinking Americans and I certainly have no brief for the Russians because I happen to be on the American side and served most of my adult life in, in, in the service. But it's becoming increasingly apparent to most Americans that the reason the Russians put the uh, missiles in there 
was they, they wanted to discourage uh, any further American adventurism or landing in Cuba. And in any case, uh, the, whichever view you take, the crisis was laid upon us by those missiles. And uh, Kennedy's view, certainly the right view, was we had to get those missiles out of there. But the the approach to, to recommended to him by the military and uh, our intelligence advisors around Kennedy was to bomb and invade Cuba, a desire much desired, of course, by the military and intelligence. But Kennedy Kennedy replied, as only Kennedy could, wouldn't that kill an awful lot of Cubans? And so he found the solution that they didn't dream of, because you can't deny his intelligence nor his imagination. And the solution which he, which he was able to, to work out, uh, communicating through the Russian ambassador and with with Khrushchev of Russia, they worked out a solution in which Kennedy's solution was the blockade, without firing shots, without uh, bombing Cuba, without killing Cuba. We simply set up a blockade. And at first, reluctantly, and then finally, realizing that was the best solution, the Russians ended up pulling out their missiles. And, and that was, the, that was uh, what I would, uh, I think, can fairly be described as a resolution of the Cuban crisis without drawing the United States into a war. At the same time, it was not a Cold War move. It was an anti-Cold War move because it, uh, it used reason rather than force to resolve the problem. The reaction of the, the Cubans and the anti-Castro individuals who were being trained, and they were being trained north of Lake Pontchartrain in New Orleans. <clears throat> Guy Bannister, former special agent in charge of the Chicago office, but by, by 1962 and 63 was working for the Central Intelligence Agency, and uh, his right-hand man was David Ferry, who comes in, into the story later, but... Guy Bannister was uh, operating this anti-Castro uh, movement, which was uh, completely in opposition to everything that Kennedy was talking about and had in mind, and was it contemplated nothing less, ultimately, than, than another invasion of Cuba. The Cubans themselves had come, and the anti-Castro uh, adventurers with them, had come to hate John Kennedy for what they regarded as... Uh, a failure to back them up, but it was, actually it was quite different. It was a case of avoiding a war on his part when he when he agreed with Khrushchev not to invade Cuba again. But they never forgave him for that, and, and nevertheless, even worse, they were continuing to violate the, the president's specific order, which is the law of the land, and they were training daily for the ultimate invasion of Cuba. They had a cover name, which which they kept secret, but it's kind of surfaced in some recent years. It's called Operation Mongoose, and uh, it looked like, uh, on the surface, like a legitimate uh, 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 a series of forays uh, against uh, uh, Cuba, uh, ostensibly in a national interest. But if you look at the, if you look at the uh, actual. A description in a 1961 memorandum of, uh, of Operation Mongoose is described by Major General Lansdale, who'd spent years in Vietnam, keeping the Vietnam War going. You will see that it was clear that he had in mind uh, once more the ultimate invasion of Cuba and nothing less. And so what you had under the cover of Operation Mongoose, you had this daily training going north of Lake Pontchartrain, uh, 
That's how New Orleans comes into it. I didn't put New Orleans into it. Sometimes people say, why you, as if I brought New Orleans into it? And the answer, of course, if I was D.F. Pittsburgh, it wouldn't have been me. But I was D.F. New Orleans, and New Orleans is where they were setting up this next invasion of Cuba. And every day or so, Dave Ferry would drive from dressed in, in Army uh, out combat outfits, black boots, and he'd drive from uh, Bannister's office across the lake and check uh, uh, the training, which consisted largely of shooting, uh, and uh, uh, come back and, and give his report, and it was moving forward pretty steadily until Kennedy learned in late 63, precisely uh, uh, August the 1st, 1963, he learned now that, that for several years now, his orders against any more anti-Cuba activity, much less preparation, for a new land invasion of Cuba was being violated. So he had to call on the FBI to actually raid the CIA camp where the Cubans and anti other anti-Castro people were being trained. But even then, the FBI, because the intelligence community protects uh, different parts of each other, did not make it public to the people until we were able to find it out. The troops were being trained there, too, to land in Cuba. and uh, But they broke it up for the time being. Uh, I'm not sure that made a lot of difference by then. A lot of men had been trained uh, since this was August 1st, 63. An awful lot of men had been trained and were available to do some shooting when November came in Dallas. This reminds me a little of uh, some of the uh, Rand-Contra activities that certain elements of intelligence through uh, NSC seem to be carrying on um, a foreign policy that was separate, at least from the espoused policy of um, the executive branch and certainly the uh, foreign policy of the Congress. Uh, and but, but in this case, the president uh, acted through the FBI to break up this uh, secret team's activities. It's not just a little, uh, that's a very good analogy, uh, a metaphor, but it's, it's, it's not just a little, like it really is um, the predecessor to it. it in other words, uh, the CIA was, uh, uh, in the Kennedy thing, was, was not using just uh, CIA individuals, it was going off the shelf, which is his phrase, uh, going outside of the agency offices and so forth and going to taking some civilian groups and other groups off the shelf operation that was building up by 63, which I just described, a force from which, from which you had the central ingredients that actually murdered John Kennedy, which, uh, again, uh, leaves it nothing but a, a CIA murder of John Kennedy, but the covert elements of the CIA, that's what I want to emphasize, but that was indeed the predecessor of the Iran Contra business. It was the grandfather of that and, and the others which followed. I, I think Casey had in mind uh, setting up a series of uh, off-the-shelf operations, and <clears throat> it probably wasn't the first one the North was involved in. Friday, November 22nd, 1963. The first day begins at an early morning breakfast meeting. President Kennedy greets an overflow audience. Years ago, I said that, uh, introduced myself in Paris by saying that I was the man who had accompanied uh, Mrs. Kennedy to Paris. I'm getting that somewhat that same sensation uh, as I travel around uh, Texas. Nobody wonders what Lyndon and I wear. 
A short flight to Love Field at Dallas. Arrival time, 11.37 of the same morning. It looks like a police convention. We have never seen as many Dallas police officers in one location in all of our years of covering Dallas news, but they are here in great profusion. The security precautions at this luncheon they're going to attend range from the distance from the president's car door to the trademark entrance and to how many doors and windows are in the building, and even the method of selecting the state the president will eat. And here is the presidential jet, U.S. Air Force number one, printed on the side, and the crowd begins its cheer, which you can't hear over the whistle and hum of the jet. But handkerchiefs are being waved, the placards are being held high, and hundreds of tiny American flags are now being waved toward the presidential jet. The doors fly open, and the loading ladders are being wheeled into place. This is a split-second timed operation for the Secret Service and the Air Force and the Signal Corps. Nothing is left to chance. Every possible precaution has been taken. You're listening to The Assassination of JFK, The Garrison Interview, Part 1. This 1988 radio documentary was co-produced by David Mendelson and Andrew Phillips and includes the voices of narrator Roscoe, former New Orleans DA Jim Garrison, filmmaker Oliver Stone, Lee Harvey Oswald, and Philip Melanson. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. This is the first of a series of Latin listening post interviews with persons more or less directly concerned with the conflict between the United States and Cuba. In subsequent programs, we will present talks with people who are connected with the Cuban refugee organizations, people who are connected with President Batista, and U.S. citizens with direct stakes in the outcome of the Cuban situation. Tonight, we have with us a representative of probably the most controversial organization connected with Cuba in this country. The organization, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. The person, Lee Oswald, secretary of the New Orleans chapter to the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. This organization has long been on the Justice Department's blacklist and is a group which is generally considered to be the leading pro-Castro body in the nation. As a reporter of Latin American affairs in this city for several years now, your columnist has kept a lookout for local representatives of this pro-Castro group. None appeared in public view until this week when young Lee Oswald was arrested and convicted for disturbing the peace. 
He was, erect, he was arrested while passing out pro-Castro literature to a crowd which included several violently anti-Castro Cuban refugees. When we finally tracked Mr. Oswald down today and asked him to participate in Latin listening posts, he told us frankly that he would because it may help his organization attract more members in this area. With that in mind, and knowing that Mr. Oswald must have had to demonstrate a great skill in dialectics before he was entrusted with his present post, we now proceed on the course of random questioning of Mr. Oswald. Mr. Oswald, uh, if I may, uh, how long has the Fair Play for Cuba Committee uh, had an organization in New Orleans? We have had members in this area for several months now. Up until about two months ago, however, we have not organized our members into any sort of an active group. Uh, until, as you say, this week, we have decided to feel out the public uh, what they think of our organization, our aims. And for that purpose, we have been, as you say, distributing literature on the street uh, for the purpose of trying to attract uh, new members and feel out the public. Are you at liberty to reveal the membership of your organization? No, I'm not. For what reason? Well, as secretary, I believe it's standard operating uh, procedure that an organization uh, consisting of a political minority protect the names and addresses of its members. And I have every, uh, uh, that is my duty, and I have every reason to do that. Mr. Oswald, there are many commentators in the journalistic field in this country that equate uh, the Fair Play for, Cuba, for a Cuba Committee with the American Communist Party. Um, what's your feeling about this, and are you a member of the American Communist Party? Well, <laughs> the uh, uh, Fair Play for Cuba Committee, with its headquarters at 799 Broadway in New York, has been investigated by the Senate subcommittees uh, uh, who are occupied with this sort of thing. They have investigated our organization from the viewpoint of taxes, uh, subversion, uh, allegiance, uh, and in general where uh, and how and why we exist. Uh, they have found absolutely nothing to connect us with the Communist Party of the United States. Uh, in regards to your question about whether I myself am a communist, uh, as I said, I do not belong to any other organization. I noticed from your We've been listening to an interview with Lee Harvey Oswald, which was done in the summer of 1963. On the line is Dr. Philip Melanson, who is a leading expert and author on the subject of the political assassins, an expert on the subject of intelligence uh, in the United States. The, the clip you just played is a, is a classic because he... He tells the interviewer, uh, creates the same impression that he would create for the FBI when, after his arrest, he asked that an FBI agent be brought into his cell so he could give him a lot of information. And both in that radio interview just played and the FBI interview, he made the Fair Play for Cuba chapter sound like a powerful, clandestine, secretive organization when, in fact, it had no members, only a bunch of paper that he generated and only him, and he never tried to find any other kinds of any other members. Since I was uh, then in the city and happened to be DA and was, had the responsibility of seeing what Lee Oswald was doing this summer of, of 63, I went down to 544 camp to look at it and see what it was. And I took one look and I said, hell, this is a side entrance to Guy Bannister's office. I knew Guy. He used to be head of the Chicago FBI office and during World War II. He was in the Office of Naval Intelligence. Lee Harvey Oswald, when he was giving out leaflets uh, supposedly in support of Castro, the Fair Play for Cuba yeah. Committee, 
544 Camp Street was stamped on the literature. So this is uh, where 544 comes into the case, through Oswald having worked there in the same building where Guy Bannister uh, was operating. But just to underscore the significance of what you just said, what you were describing is a situation which ostensibly communist material has stamped on it an address 544 camp, which is the location of part of the intelligence community in New Orleans, meaning, without a question of a doubt, this prima facie evidence, that, that Lee Oswald was not a communist at all. He was uh, an agent provocateur. We later found out that on the third floor of Bannister's office, he, he located a small room and cleaned it out and gave it to Oswald to keep his pamphlets in. But you could see Oswald starting out in the morning and, and uh, Bannister with his gruff voice and his steel blue eyes saying, Lee, you're doing a good job. Get some more of those pamphlets out today, son. They like what you're doing in Washington. So he goes out and hands them out like he's a communist, but he's the one that calls the news people to come take the pictures. And he's doing acting out a role as a communist, but he doesn't know they're really fattening him up to be the turkey for Thanksgiving. They, he's the scapegoat. They're going to have him murdered by making him look like a communist. Bannister was once the chief of the FBI office in, uh, in Chicago. How did he first come to your attention in relationship to the, uh, to the assassination, Guy Bannister? He first came to my attention well, before the assassination when I was district attorney. Uh, Seth Morris and the mayor of New Orleans said, we have a man named Bannister. looks like he might be a good uh, superintendent of pol assistant superintendent of police for that vacancy. And, and uh, I didn't know much about him, but I said, if he's got a good FBI background, he certainly is organized and sounds good to me. But anyway, how did he first come to my attention was when I, when I after spending some nights with the Warren Commission, when I... I had put aside the address 544 camp to check because I saw that Lee Oswald was was uh, uh, putting that stamp, with his little rubber stamp on papers. He, and he only did it one day, and they stopped him. They were they kind of had a heart attack, I'm sure, but when he was putting that on on the papers, he was handing out to the public. But he he didn't know that he was uh, he was set to be uh, the scapegoat. So he was doing what he thought was 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 natural, but. Uh, what actually happened was when he was arrested on August the 9th uh, and and brought to the uh, brought to the first district, first thing he did was to ask to to speak to an FBI agent, and the FBI agent came over, Agent Quigley, and very promptly Quigley and Oswald were locked in a private conference for some time. This is Oswald was arrested. Yeah, he was arrested with. He was arrested on the 9th August uh, because of a controversy. It was a set-up controversy with other Cubans. In other words, one of those things with, with another Cuban who at the right time said, uh, uh, Oswald said, uh, hit me, Carlos, and Carlos swung at him and hit him, and then Oswald pleaded guilty. That's just to make it look like he was a troublemaker for the communists. It was all set up. And it was... Um, it, it resolved in, in, his, in those particular pamphlets being becoming available to the eye, though, and ultimately available to me. So I, I put them on side check, and then a few nights later, I, I came across uh, in the Warren Commission report. I'm surprised nobody else found it first. I, I found myself reading Colonel Folsom's um, 201, his personnel file, 201 file of, of Lee Oswald and the Marines, and he casually mentioned, and here's Lee Oswald's grades in a ricin test. 
And somebody must have kicked him under the table because uh, he said he didn't do too well. He got almost as many right as he got wrong. But I wouldn't get any right in a ration test. With all my years in the military, and I was a major by then, I never took a ration test. He was a private taking a Russian examination. And, and so I realized then that there were signs of intelligence before I left the house and intelligence training of Oswald for some nation. And this was a few, not long before, when he took this test, not long before he left for Russia. So obviously, in retrospect, he, he didn't leave as a communist. He left with, as, as, a, as a young Marine with, with, with an intelligence assignment because he had, otherwise the Marines wouldn't be teaching him Russian. But I want, I want to see what this uh, sort of place this Russian, when this, quote, Russian studying Marine was, was operating out of, and that's what caused me to go down that weekend morning to Lafayette Square and look at 544 Camp Street, where I found, my God, this so-called communist, the lone assassin, the man who's supposed to have murdered John Kennedy, the man whom, who was butchered before anybody could ask him too many questions, was... Uh, was an agent provocateur working for the United States government. I, that address, 544 Camp, was a side entrance to Guy Bannister's office. Around the corner on Lafayette Street was the entrance to Bannister's office. Across the street, where in the post office building, was an office of naval intelligence, and Bannister was naval intelligence in World War II. I knew some of these people. I knew that. And, 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 and the Secret Service, I... As a, a district attorney in New Orleans, I knew where some of these Secret Service was also across the street, around the corner in Lafayette, just across Lafayette Square around the corner, was the office of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and also on another floor, the office of the Central Intelligence Agency. The lone assassin, this, uh, this person who's been described to all Americans and lied by the, other lies by the federal government to all the world as a, as a communist was was a soldier doing his assignment, a Marine soldier doing what he was taught to do after he was given intelligence training, operating right out of the heart, the very heart of the intelligence community. The reason that the heart is located there so close to the riverfront is that's where all the ships go uh, from New Orleans down to Central America and South America. And a lot of the members of the ship's staff, as you might imagine, are, are intelligence men too. Nobody was in that office who was not intelligence. Uh, Bannister's office. The time that he began operating, the week is not specific, but it's known that it, it was through August that he was handing out the pamphlets. And earlier in the summer, he was working around the corner at uh, at uh, the um, uh, Riley Coffee Company. Well, well, Mr. Riley is not necessarily involved at all, but uh, may apparently the nesting place was made available that. Uh, some request that the coffee company didn't know the reason for, but the request by the intelligence community for this nesting place for Oswald. He was operating out of the Riley Coffee Company. Didn't have that much to do, so he spent most of his time at the Alba garage next door, which happened to be the garage, and that's something else I was aware of. That was a garage for the intelligence community. It didn't even accept civilian automobiles. It was filled up with the intelligence community. So that's where he spent the earlier part of the summer and then when August came, he was handing out the pamphlets uh, as, as an agent provocateur to look like a communist so that when Jack Kennedy was murdered by the covert action elements uh, getting ready to kill him for the CIA so this foreign policy could be changed back to the Cold War policy, he was being trained uh, like a turkey being fattened for Thanksgiving. 
The reception line is formed, and there is Mrs. Kennedy, the first lady stepping from the plane, wearing a bright pink suit with a dark fur collar and a matching pink hat, and the president wearing a dark suit steps off directly behind. Mrs. Kennedy has been presented her bouquet of brilliant red roses, and they make a lovely contrast to the bright pink suit she is wearing. The weather couldn't be better. We have a brilliant sun at this moment. The wind has diminished considerably, and it has turned into a comfortable situation for the hundreds of people who came here to Dallas Love Field to witness the arrival of the president and his first lady. And here comes the president now. In fact, he's not in his limousine. He's departed the limousine, and he is walking. He is reaching across the fence, shaking hands, shaking hands with many of the people who have come here to see him. He is closely accompanied by Dallas police officers and, of course, the Secret Service. I was curious, after I found out how unquestionably, uh, how clear it was that Oswald was a, an agent provocateur, that he was working for government intelligence from the outset. I was wondering, how did the U.S. government, the intelligence community, handle his co-workers so that uh, they wouldn't be telling too many people, well, he didn't get many assignments. This was just a nesting place. He didn't have to do too much. So I, I sent my chief investigator over there, and he was back in an hour and a half with a list of paper. And every man that had been working with Oswald at the, at the Ronnie Coffee Company or above him had been, within two weeks, had been moved out to a higher-paying job out at NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Brannion had gone to Chrysler. This man had gone to Boeing. This man was working for NASA itself. Another man was working for NASA. The same thing happened to anybody who helped in the assassination. For example, we arrested uh, David Ferry within 72 hours of the assassination when we stumbled across it, uh, the fact that he drove across the former friend of Lee Oswald's when he was in the CAP. Drove across. We had a Sunday meeting to review the whole thing. This Kennedy's body still warm. And uh, we found out uh, uh, this odd character, David Ferry, who later was, we learned was working with, with Oswald out of Bannister's office, had driven across the state line into Texas the day of the assassination. So uh, we, we waited for him to come back. And when he came back on Monday morning, uh, I had him arrested, brought to my house and, uh, office and said, what was what, what, what your reason for going into Texas at this strange time? And he explained he hadn't been ice skating in years and was seized with the urge to go ice skating. So I said, well, that's very interesting. But how did you happen to pick the, the heaviest storm in many years to drive that? Well, he couldn't think of an answer to that. So I had him taken over to the uh, FBI, the first district, to be held for the FBI for investigation. You couldn't give these guys. I'm trying to give these guys the assassins, the, the people who set him up for the case and they dropped a ferry like a hot potato. They even made a public announcement uh, because I guess uh, members of the intelligence community recognized one another, made a public announcement that it was not the FBI's idea to arrest Mr. Ferry, but it was uh, uh, Jim Garrison's. But we, we got one of the guys involved pretty, pretty darn early by accident. We were looking for somebody who was associated with Lee Oswald, uh, and even though he apparently was a pro agent provocateur, uh, as more and more as it turned out, we wanted to see who was associated with him. We found soon enough that uh, that David Ferry was with him frequently. So we had a, it was a it was a 
and rejected the complaint because it was such a minor case, but it had his address on it. And so we went over to Dave Ferry's house to see what was happening, and we found several kids, uh, friends of his, waiting there for him, and they admitted he'd gone to Texas, waiting for him to come back from Texas. And I noticed a map of Cuba on the wall, all kinds of rifles, all kinds of military equipment, and I realized I wasn't dealing with Joe Smith American, and uh, so we waited for him to come back, and uh, uh, that's when I questioned him, and, and he didn't answer the questions very effectively. It was, and to make a long story short, we got the right guy, and it's, it's the House Committee, although it didn't do a very effective job, it did it. It did conclude that there was a conspiracy, and it went on to say, 10 years later, went on to say one of the signs that a conspiracy existed was Lee Oswald's association with David Ferry. It said uh, uh, that uh, that's very strange, but that suggests the possibility of a conspiracy. That's what I was trying to say 10 years earlier. But then it went on to say, but now it was too late to look into. And there's the gunmetal gray limousine, blue and gray, pulling away now from the fence area. The president and Mrs. Kennedy seated on the back seat, Governor and Mrs. Connolly on the second seats or jump seats, and then the official driver and secret service men are in the front seat. A flying wedge of some one dozen Dallas police motorcycles leading the way, and the pace is picking up as they head for the departure gate and the trip downtown to the trade mart. I think this is a, a, probably a good point for me to jump in with my hostile question, so to speak. Um, David Ferry, I understand, the weekend of the assassination, or, or the Friday of the assassination, was working for Carlos Marcello, who was... Uh, who's isn't alleged? That, isn't that funny? I have the impression he was working for his boss, private detective Ray Gill. But I'll let you take your own speculations. I hear you. But Gill was was Marcello's attorney at the time. At, on that particular weekend, that's right. And next week he was somebody else's attorney. At which time David Ferry was still working for Ray Gill. I hear you, and I want to hear more. I want to just put in the question that, um, as you say, the, the big theory that's being put forward now is that uh, elements of organized crime were responsible for killing Kennedy. Let's, let's go straight to that. And uh, you've got a clock watch. Let me just see how many seconds it takes me to dispose in the minds of a reasonable man of, of organized crime being involved. First of all, the reason given for the uh, contended organized crime, and the listeners should understand that this idea was conceived and is spread consistently by the Central Intelligence Agency so that you will look away from its covert operations and its other murders. The reason given for the supposed involvement of organized crime is so that they could get rid of the Attorney General. Well, if you want to get rid of the Attorney General, truly, all you have to do Bobby Kennedy was at the time, is uh, shoot him when he goes to the, his Justice Department office in the morning or on the way out in the afternoon because he didn't even have a bodyguard. All he had was a driver who was also the bodyguard. Now compare that to getting rid of him in the way that the, the, the agency wants you to believe the mafia. You've got to give the mob credit for having more sense than this. To have to penetrate the huge guard around the President of the United States the, the Secret Service protection, the FBI protection, all the other agencies, the protection of the police and the city in order ultimately to cause his attorney general to end up without a job 
is really not very logical. But let's take another step further. One of the one of the most critical steps in, in accomplishing the murder was the change of the parade route at the last second. On the morning of the parade, the Dallas Morning News showed that the parade route for the president was to continue, as it came to Dealey Plaza, continue on Main Street all the way through Dealey Plaza. That map was five-sixths, leaving just one column on the left of the front page, showing so everybody could see the proud of the president. Now, what actually happened was when the presidential motorcade came and reached Dealey Plaza, without warning, it turned right. It turned right down Houston and left into Elm. It was a cul-de-sac where the ambush was waiting, and secondly, that double turn, the last leg of which was 120 degrees to the left, slowed his vehicle down to 10 miles an hour, when you, where you could hit him with a rock. If he had been going 25 miles an hour, as he had been, out in, and would be out in the meadow as planned uh, through the center of Dealey Plaza on Main, they would have been able to hit the side of the car. With it. But anyway, that's what happened. The parade was changed at the last moment, the parade of the President of the United States. Now, those of you who are waiting along the parade route, uh, just to be sure that you find yourself in the proper location, let's give it to you once again. It will go Mockingbird Lane to Lemon Avenue, then travel south on Lemon to Turtle Creek, Cedar Springs, through the downtown area on Harwood to Maine, west on Maine to Houston, through the triple underpass to Stemmons Freeway, then on to the trademark. President's car is now turning on to Elm Street, and it will be only a matter of minutes before he arrives at the trademark. I was on Simmons Freeway earlier, and even the freeway was jam-packed with spectators waiting their chance to see the president as he made his way towards the trademark. It, it, it appears as though something has happened in the motorcade route. Something, I repeat, has happened in the motorcade route. There's numerous people running up the hill alongside Elm Street, there by the Simmons Freeway. Several police officers are rushing up the hill at this time. Stand by just a moment, please. Something has happened in the motorcade route. Stand by, please. Parkland Hospital, there has been a shooting. Parkland Hospital has been advised to stand by for a severe gunshot wound. I repeat, a shooting in the motorcade in the downtown area. Parkland Hospital has been advised to stand by for a severe gunshot wound. The president's car is now going past me. The limousine is now traveling at a very high rate of speed, Secret Service men standing up in the limousine. They are armed with submachine guns. It appears as though someone in the limousine might have been hit by the gunfire. Put me on, Phil. Put me on. Hello, my on. We're here at the trademark. The motorcade is coming by here. I can see many, many motorcycles coming by now. Police motorcycles. Just had a call on the radio for all units along industrial to pick up the motorcade. Something has happened here. We understand there has been a shooting. The presidential car coming up now. We know it's the presidential car. You can see Mrs. Kennedy's pink suit. There's a Secret Service man spread eagle over the top of the car. We understand Governor and Mrs. Connolly are in the car with President and Mrs. Kennedy. We can't see who has been hit, if anybody's been hit, but apparently something is wrong here. Something is terribly wrong. I'm in behind the motorcade. Trying to follow them. It looks as though they're going to Parkland Hospital. We're on the road to Parkland at this time. Secret Service man is still spread eagle over whoever is in the car, the President and Mrs. Kennedy, and as we understand, Governor and Mrs. Connolly. At this point, it looks as though it could have been one or two or even all of the people within the car may have been the victims, may have been struck by shots. We don't know. Hoffman Hospital in the distance. 
Alright, Harry Hines Boulevard, following behind the motorcade. Many, many police officers, maybe 20 or 25 motorcycle policemen, falling in behind at trademark. A huge car left behind, waiting expectantly to see the president. The motorcade now, motorcade now perhaps two or three blocks ahead of me. They're approaching the entrance now through Parkland Hospital, traveling at a high rate of speed. Ready police cars converging on Parkland from every angle. I have been ridiculed and worse for suggesting the existence of a conspiracy, as though only kooks and cranks and extremists suggest their existence. But this is the wrong city in which to ridicule people who believe in conspiracies. On January 15, 1992, Oliver Stone, director of JFK, spoke before the National Press Club in Washington and took questions from the audience. Is it inconceivable that a president of the United States could sit at the heart of a criminal conspiracy designed to cover up a crime? We know what happened. We would have impeached him for it had he not resigned. Just one jump ahead. Is it so far-fetched to believe in a high-level conspiracy involving the White House, the Joint Chiefs, the Air Force, and the CIA to bomb a neutral country and lie about it in military reports to the rest of the country? But it happened, perhaps more than once. Is it inconceivable the National Security Council leadership with or without the knowledge of the President of the United States and with the collaboration of the director of the CIA, not just a few rogues, could be engaged in a massive conspiracy to ship arms to our sworn enemy with a casual hope that a few hostages might be released as a result? But it happened. Does it offend our sense of propriety to suggest that an assistant secretary of state for Latin America might have regularly lied to Congress about raising money abroad to perform things that Congress had forbidden us to do? But that happened. Is it inconceivable that a campaign manager, later to become the uh, CIA director, negotiated with a foreign country to keep American hostages imprisoned until after a presidential election in order to ensure the election of his candidate? We shall see. But I think no one thinks it is out of the question anymore. So when JFK suggests that a conspiracy involving elements of a government, people in the CIA, people in the FBI, perhaps people associated with the Joint Chiefs, all in the service of the military-industrial complex that President Eisenhower warned us about, might have conspired to kill John Fitzgerald Kennedy because he was going sharply to change the direction of American foreign policy, is it not appropriate at least to look there for evidence? What was Alan Dulles really up to in those months? Or Charles Cabell, also fired by JFK, or his brother Earl Cabell, the mayor of Dallas? Thomas Jefferson urged on us the notion that when truth can compete in a free marketplace of ideas, it will prevail. There is as yet no marketplace of history for the years of the Kennedy assassination and immediately afterward. Let us begin to create one. You've been listening to The Assassination of JFK, The Garrison Interview, Part 1. In this 1988 radio documentary, you have heard the voices of narrator Roscoe, co-producer and writer David Mendelson, interviewing former New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison, filmmaker Oliver Stone, Lee Harvey Oswald, in a 1963 radio interview, and professor and author Philip Melanson. The assassination of JFK, the Garrison interview, was co-produced, directed, and edited by Andrew Phillips.
Andrew Phillips is currently the Interim General Manager of KPFA Radio in Berkeley, California, part of the Pacifica Network. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at gunsandbutter.org. Up the hill at this time, stand by just a moment, please.